Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Ah, and Pastor Scott, this is probably yours, isn't it? That's all right. There you go. Um, it's so good to be here tonight. Enjoyed this morning. Enjoyed, uh, always enjoy my fellowship with uh, Pastor Scott and Miss Pam and uh, just so good to be back in the Midwest. Let's stand up. Let's pray before we start. Let's, let's just lift our hearts to God. Father, thank you for who you said we are. You said that you're building us into a spiritual temple, that we're holy priests, that we're a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. And we thank you that we can stand before you tonight, not by our perfection, because we don't have that. Uh, we stand before you, Father, because of Jesus. And it's in his name and the authority of who he is and all that he accomplished that we stand here tonight in, in covenant relationship with you. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who's hovering in this place and filling us and indwelling us right now. And Lord, we thank you that no good thing do you withhold uh, from your people. Because if you would give us Jesus, how would you not with him also freely give us all things? So, Lord, with the heart and, and hands of faith, we reach up and we receive every provision uh, that you have for us. We thank you for the peace of God. We thank you for the wisdom of God. We thank you for divine healing, divine health. Lord, we just thank you that you uh, empower and impart all good things to us to walk in, and we receive it in and through the name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen. amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Um, I always, uh, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words, and so uh, hope you liked a few of those pictures this morning. Have a few more for you. Is that okay? I want to introduce you to me, familia, my family. Uh, my wife, uh, we've been married 44 years. That is just, oh my gosh, uh, it just seems like yesterday and, and yet so much time has flown by. Our daughter uh, is uh, there next to my wife. She's, uh, well, I won't say how old the kids are. They're older than they used to be. And, um, but, but both of my kids love God and we're so thankful. Now, our son gave us a run for our money. Uh, and, and for many years, several years, uh, people would say, well, how's your son doing? And my wife had a great line. She said, he's working on his testimony. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, if you have kids that are not, you know, just know that God still loves them and, and uh, don't give up on them and, and uh, that type of thing. But, but both of our kids are worship leaders and we're so grateful and so thankful for that. The next picture is uh, something I'm going to see next week. That is one of the most famous buildings in the world. Uh, it's called the Hagia Sophia. Uh, for 1,000 years, it was the largest church structure in all of Christianity around the world for 1,000 years. And, um, and today, it's a mosque. It's located in Istanbul. Uh, I've been in it a handful of times. Uh, when when uh, one of the Russian czars, uh, way back when, realized our people need a faith, and he sent different emissaries out to check out different religions, and, and uh, the, the, for different reasons, they didn't like, you know, they said, well, we don't want to do Islam, we don't want to do Judaism, uh, but they sent people here, he sent a team here to check out Christianity, because for a thousand years, this was the largest uh, church structure in all of Christianity. And when they went in there and God was being worshipped, uh, let, let me show the next picture inside. Now again, today it's a mosque, but if you can imagine beforehand, they, they said, we did not know if we were in heaven or on earth. You know, the worship of God was so beautiful in that place. And, 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 and so the Russian... Uh, people went with uh, what's called, you know, Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, but, but this is such an influential place, and I'll get to drop in there again. I always make it a point to go there. Uh, we're leaving for Turkey next Thursday, but the next picture that we have is um, 
I had to blur out the faces because these mostly young people are, they're Iranian refugees. And they'd come into Istanbul. This is our very first trip to Turkey. Probably doesn't matter now because this was 20 years ago. Uh, but uh, the Hagans were kind enough to give us a box, two boxes actually of books uh, to take to these individuals. A handful of them read English and a bunch of the other books that we took actually went into Tehran uh, immediately while we were there at that particular conference. And so that was a real moving time for us. The next picture is... Um, that is at a conference I did on the outskirts of ancient Ephesus in, uh, in 2017, I believe it was. And uh, this brother had just gotten a copy of Brother Hagen's book, Triumphant Church, in the Turkish language. And you can see from the joy on his face, you know, how much that meant because there's so few uh, books available, Christian books in the Turkish language. The next picture is uh, the book that is going to be released while I'm there uh, in, in a week or so. It's In Search of Timothy in the Turkish language. Uh, the next picture is going to be, uh, this is one of the churches I got to preach in in Egypt. Now, our, our primary reason to go to Egypt was to teach in the Bible schools, but they said, you know, we want you to preach and, and, and get a feel for a local church with, you know, Egyptian folks, and so this was the service, and that's kind of a, what do you call it, fisheye lens, you can't really tell, but I was shocked to find out that in Egypt, uh, the men still sit in the front, and the women are either way in the back or off to the side, you know, it's still that cultural thing going on, and um, this actually was not the church we were supposed to be in, uh, it was kind of a last second arrangement, they called us at about four in the afternoon, they said, now the church you're supposed to be in, uh, they've closed that off because two families are having a, a little miniature war in the, uh, in the apartment complexes, and they've got weapons and explosives. And they said, so we're going to take you to a different church tonight. So that's, that's why we ended up here. But I, I just thought it was very fascinating to be in a place. And you can see on the far left, uh, some of the women had on the head coverings, which again is you know, part of their cultural thing, but, uh, but it was a delightful night. The next picture that we have, uh, this is a church in Egypt. It's part of a, a complex called the Cave Churches, and these supposedly go back to the 8th century, and um, uh, this is actually not the largest one. There's one like 10 times larger than this one, but this is the most uh, picturesque and uh, I, don't, I don't know the history of how they built it or if it was that way naturally or whatever, but uh, again, the Christianity in Egypt goes all the way back to the Apostle Mark. Uh, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark took the Gospel there in the first century, is said to have been martyred in Alexandria, but there's still groups of people. Uh, they're called Coptic Christians. We would think, well, they're kind of like Catholics and, and that type of thing, but... Um, there is, you know, that uh, strand or stream uh, of the Christian faith that is still in Egypt today, although uh, the vast majority are, are Muslim. So anyway, thank you for keeping us in your prayers. That's where we're going to be leaving Thursday, go to eat, uh, Turkey first. Uh, we're going to stop on the island of Cyprus for some personal exploration of a few historical sites. That's where Paul and Barnabas did their first missions journey. And then we'll go to Egypt and then finish up in Lebanon. And again, thank you for helping us these 20 years uh, do the things we've been privileged to do. I'm going to pick up and share from where we were this morning. This morning, uh, for those of you that were not here, I'm sharing from our newest book called The End of Spectator Church. And I shared this morning how that in the church I grew up in, I was just a spectator. Uh, I saw the pastor as kind of like a priest. Uh, he was the connection to God. And he had probably some knowledge that I didn't have, obviously, and maybe some kind of relationship with God. And, and I was just kind of a spectator, an observer, and i just go to see whatever the pastor could give me because I didn't think I could know God for myself. Um, you know, certainly the Bible didn't make sense when I tried to read it. So the pastor was, in a sense, my mediator uh, between me and God. Uh, 
And I don't in any way, shape, or form diminish or, or uh, denigrate the value and the importance of pastors. Uh, pastors are called by God to, you know, oversee the church and to feed the church and very important functions. Uh, but no pastor, no evangelist, no apostle, no prophet, a teacher is your mediator between you and God. Uh, there is one God and there is one mediator, bridge, connection between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. And that's why Pastor uh, Scott was joking about, you know, my point uh, this morning and that he's going to have to revise this old sermon or something like that. Um, you know, that you don't need to come to God and say, Father, in the name of Jesus and in the name of, you know, the name of Jesus is the only one you need. All right. You've absolutely got God's attention that way. It won't give you any extra points with God if you say, and by the way, I, I heard Tony Cook preach. It's like God's, oh, well, in that case, okay, well, all my treasures of heaven are open to you. No, the name of Jesus is the name. As Pastor Scott said, there's salvation in no other name uh, except him. And so the Bible teaches us that in the new birth, in becoming children of God, getting forgiven, uh, being made a new creature in Christ, Peter said in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, that we are a being built, God is building us into a spiritual temple, and that we are holy priests. You say, but the priests and the temple were two different things. How, how could we be both? Well, Jesus is, is the sacrifice and the high priest. How can he be two different things? You know, uh, to borrow an old phrase, God can walk and chew gum at the same time. Okay? Uh, it's no conflict for Jesus to be both the Lamb of God who was slain, the sacrificial Lamb, and the high priest. And it's no conflict for us corporately to be both the spiritual temple of God and the priest. Peter said you're holy priests. In 1 Peter 2, 9, just a few verses later, Peter said you are a royal priesthood. And then in First uh, Revelation chapter 1, I think it was verse 6, I don't remember, uh, John said we are a kingdom of priests. And we said the definition of a priest, because every believer needs to know that you are a priest, because if you're not a priest, you're, you're going to likely become a spectator. You're, you're going to likely think that somebody else prays, somebody else has a relationship with God, somebody else, you know, is close to God, but you're just kind of an outsider looking in. Uh, the definition that I gave today of priesthood is that, that our priesthood means that we have the privilege of access to God, to His presence and His blessings. We have the privilege of accessing the presence and the blessings of God and the responsibility of representing Him then to others. We said that there were five functions of the priesthood as a New Testament believer, at least five. These are the five I cover. Number one, we function as priests because we still, how many of you know there's still the offering of sacrifices in the New Testament? It's just not animal sacrifices. We offer God the sacrifice of ourselves. Paul said, present your bodies to God, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So this idea of surrender, of, of consecration, of yieldedness, uh, all of that is part of our priestly responsibility uh, to God. We have the privilege of presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice. Number two, we function as priests when we worship, praise, and pray. The Bible says we're to offer up the sacrifice of our lips. So again, no animal sacrifices, but we offer up to Him the sacrifice of praise. Number three, and this is what we concluded with this morning, we function as priests when we serve. And we talked about Mary taking the jar of expensive perfume and pouring it on the feet of Jesus and drying it off with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance. And that is a picture, that literally happened, but that's a picture of what happens when we serve God by serving one another. 
in the old, in the in Bible days, that was the washing of feet with water was basic hospitality. But what Mary did was extravagant servanthood based on a heart of devotion. She wasn't just going through the motions of ritualistically fulfilling an obligation, but in her heart, she was doing something to express her love for Jesus. And when we serve one another that way, Jesus said, when you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. When we serve one another, guess what? This whole house is filled with the fragrance of serving, of hospitality, of, of just, you know, kindness, acts of kindness toward one another. So that's where we left off today. Let's pick up with number four. Number four, we function as priests when we give. We function as priests when we give. I mentioned this morning, and I'll reiterate it again, the best thing you can do for missions is to support your church. Because the local churches really were designed to be the storehouse that you bring your tithes and your offerings into. And God said that we tithe into the storehouse that there might be meat in the house. And, and when the local church is strong, it has a strong ministry within itself, within its community, and then to be able to give beyond that to world missions as well. So let me just, you know, stress and emphasize that again. But I want to look at the priestly nature of giving. In Philippians chapter 4 verse 8, Paul, uh, when I read this here a while back, I'll tell you why I got convicted. I got convicted because I thought, how many times have I given mechanically? How many times have I given without really taking a moment to, to say, God, I'm going to do this because I love you. Everything we do needs to be an expression of love, not just doing it mechanically, ritualistically, because it's time to do something. Paul said this when, when he received a financial gift from the Philippians. He said, for I have received the gift, he's talking about a financial gift, you sent by Epaphroditus and viewed it as a sweet sacrifice perfumed with the fragrance of your faithfulness, which is so pleasing to God. That, that wording, the offerings that you give to your church anywhere, it can be viewed as a sweet sacrifice perfumed with the fragrance of your faithfulness, which is so pleasing to God. You know, Pastor Scott said something today during the, uh, when it was time for the offering, and I don't know if you caught it. I, I'm paying attention to everything you're saying. No, uh, when he was transitioning today, he said, and now let's continue to worship. Do you remember saying that? Let's continue to worship God with our giving. Um, you know, so many times people think that worship is the singing. That's worship. And then once we're done with singing, then nothing else is worship. Giving is an act of worship. As a matter of fact, if you did live in the Old Testament and somebody said, let's go worship God, they, nobody was thinking about singing a song. They were thinking about, when they said, let's go to the temple, because that's where people worship, let's go to the temple and worship God. That meant, let's go give God something. That's what that meant to them. But today, sometimes we think, well, let's go to church and worship. That means we sing songs, and then once the songs are done, okay, well, we're done with the worship and that type of thing. And, and uh, you know, I met, I've met one person in my whole... Do you know in Romans chapter 12, it talks about all these different, what we call these grace expressions, having gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. And it talks about prophecy and exhortation and teaching and that type of thing, but it gets down to giving. Giving can be an expression of a grace impartation. And you can read that in Romans chapter 12, you know, that type of thing. And I met one gentleman that in all these years who said, because you talk to people, yeah, I think I'm a teacher. I think I'm called to prophecy. And it has other good ones in there. Mercy, serving. A few verses later, it talks about hospitality. I met one guy who said, do you know what my favorite part of church is? And I said, no. And he said, the offering. 
And I think, I think that's the only person I've met in 43 and a half years of ministry. And now this guy was different. So I'm not, I'm not dropping a hint to anybody about anything. You don't have to feel guilty that you're not like this guy. I'm not like this guy myself. So I'm not set, trying to make somebody something that God didn't call you to be. But this guy told me that he felt God had specifically given him a special ability from God to be a giver. And he said, uh, uh, my wife and I realized that, uh, you know, we, we felt this desire to serve God. But man, I didn't want to preach. I did, oh, getting behind the pulpit would terrify me. And he said, we, we looked at each other one day during church and realized this is our favorite part of the service when we get to give to God. And uh, like I said, I've never met anybody else like this. Um, if, you, if that's you, tell me and I'll say, now I met two people like this. But um, he said a few years ago, we just decided if this is what God's called us to do, we're not just going to give 10%, we're going to give 20 And he said, now this year we've shifted higher, we're given 30%. And he said, our goal is to keep increasing. We want to get to the point where we give 90% to God and live on 10%. And I just thought, well, that's, that's refreshing. And, and, and here's the cool thing. Nobody told him to do it. Nobody manipulated him. Nobody you know, power of suggestion. It came totally from within his heart. So, you know, my wife and I, I think we've always given more than 10%, but, but we're not on that trajectory that guy's on. But, you know, here's the point. It's not how much you give. What It's are you giving from a heart of worship? And Paul said that our giving can be a sweet sacrifice uh, uh, what does he say? A sweet sacrifice perfumed with the fragrance of our faithfulness. Man, when people give because they love, not because somebody makes them feel guilty, not because somebody drops a bunch of hints, not because somebody manipulates or anything like that. When people just say, God, I love you. You know, you're the most important thing. I, I believe in you, God. I believe in your church. Uh, I want to help my church be strong, and you do it from love, uh, that's when, again, the house is filled uh, with the fragrance. That's when we're operating in our priesthood. Number five, we function as priests when we evangelize. We function as priests when we evangelize. Now, please don't read that and think, okay, well, that only applies to the evangelist. That only applies to the preacher. That only applies to the missionary. That only applies to the man standing behind the pulpit. No, the word evangelize simply means to share the good news. And I love what you have there. Live the gospel. Preach the gospel. You know, Peter said that our lives are to be such that we are ready to give an answer to people who ask us of the hope that is within us. Wouldn't that be amazing if we lived with so much hope and joy and peace that people just want to know, what, what's different about you? Peter said, live in such a way that, pe that you're always ready to give an answer to the people who ask you the reason for the hope. Now here's what Paul said in Romans 15, 16. He said, he, Paul, gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now what is that? You know, we, we read that and, and we kind of have to think, what, what is all this? The priestly duty. Now keep in mind that your priesthood as a believer has two sides to it. A privilege and a responsibility, right? And Paul says that God gave him the priestly duty or responsibility of proclaiming, telling people. And that can be as simple. You don't have to give a long theological treatise on, you know, penal substitutionary, you know, whatever. It just means you can just tell people, what is the good news? What did Jesus do for you? Hopefully that's good news, okay? You know, uh, you remember the, the Willie George puppet that used to sing, I'm so glad that Jesus stepped on me? You, do you remember that? 
this puppet, silly puppet, always, you know, instead of Jesus set me free, it's I'm so glad Jesus stepped on me. No, Jesus did not step on us, okay? Uh, that, that was supposed to be funny, obviously, but, um, you know, just telling somebody what Jesus has done for you. I used to be this way, but now Jesus has touched my life, and, and now I'm this way. Uh, that's a priestly duty of proclaiming the good news, the gospel of God, so that the Gentiles, well, what's a Gentile? It's somebody who doesn't have a covenant with God. When the Gentiles hear the gospel, the good news, Paul says they might become an offering to God. See, they surrender and submit themselves to God and present themselves as an offering to Him. So let's look at this next slide real quickly. We function as priests. These are five ways that you as a believer, uh, that we as believers individually and corporately can be priests. Number one, we function as priests when we offer our very selves, including our bodies, to God. Number two, we function as priests when we worship, praise, and pray. Number three, we function as priests when we serve. Number four, we function as priests when we give. Number five, we function as priests when we evangelize. Now you may look at that list and say, wait a minute, that's just basic Christianity 101. That's exactly the point of this whole message. Our Christianity 101, being a believer, is a priestly life that God has called us to. All right? So that, my friend, is the end of that message. Let me begin a new message that it's not going to be, it's not going to be a full length because I'm taking into mind I've already preached 20 minutes or something like that. But I want to share something with you that I believe, uh, to me, it gives us a solid, a rock solid framework on how we see the church. I, I believe, I don't just believe in the universal church. I believe in the local church. And the reason I share that is because just the nature of human nature and, and societal attitudes and all that, you have a lot of people today saying, well, you know, I believe in Jesus. I, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And, and kind of what they're saying by that is, I don't want to go to church. I just want to sit at you know, home or I want to go to Starbucks and take my Bible or my sit and listen to a podcast and that type of thing. And, and that's church to me. Well, if I can be so forward to say this, that, that's really what we call devotions, okay? And we're 100% in favor of people having devotions. But devotions was never meant to be a substitute for assembling together. And I want to share with you what I call today the three greats, G-R-E-A-T, Three things that are great, and, and if we will embrace these and, um, and, and internalize these things into our, our mindset, into our uh, frame of thought, I think it will make all the difference between uh, man's view and traditional views and religious views of church as opposed to what is his view of church. Because for many people today... Church is optional. Church is take it or leave it. Uh, church is defined however different people want to define it. But Jesus is the head of the church. And he made it very clear uh, what he intended for believers. I want to share with you the three greats tonight. And, and again, these won't take terribly long. But the first great, G-R-E-A-T, that we must embrace is what I'm going to call tonight the great commitment. The great commitment. Now, when preachers say to their congregation, okay, I'm going to start a series or I'm going to do a message on commitment. Do you know what most believers think? The pastor's going to tell us that we need to be committed to God. The pastor's going to tell us that we need to be committed to attending church faithfully. The pastor's going to tell us 
that we need to be committed to praying, that we need to be committed to reading our Bible. Now, all those can be valid things, and all of those are well substantiated by the Bible, but when I talk about the great commitment, it doesn't have anything to do with any of that. Because the great commitment is not a commitment we make. It's a commitment He made. What we call faith is always a response. It's not an initiation. You know, sometimes you hear people give a testimony, and it's all about, you know, well, I was lost, but I, I decided I wanted God, so I searched, and I, I did this, and I read all this stuff, and finally I found God. Well, who gets all the credit in that? You do. You did all the searching. You were hungry. You recognized. You studied. You did this. And then you found God. That is not really anybody's testimony. The testimony that we have is what's found in the old song. He sought me. And he bought me with his redeeming blood. Jesus said, you did not choose me. But I chose you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth much fruit and that your fruit should remain. John said, it's not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave his son as a sacrifice for our sins. So when we talk about the church, I will be forever grateful uh, to Pastor Larry... And, and Miss Pam, I will be forever grateful to Pastor Scott and Beth because God's called them to do something. But can I tell you something? Living Word Family Church in St. Joe, Illinois was not Pastor Larry Millis's idea, was not Pam Millis's idea, was not Pastor Scott's idea. Living Word Family Church in St. Joe, Illinois was God's idea. He used all these people we've mentioned, but notice what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, on this rock, I will build my church. Here's what I want you to understand. Before you were ever committed to the church, before you ever decided, you know, going to church on a regular basis is a really good idea. I think I'm going to go all the time. Before you ever made a commitment to be a solid member of a local church, Jesus had already committed He was going to build His church and the gates of hell were not going to prevail against the church. Jesus is always the initiator. We are always the responder. So when I talk about the great commitment, I'm not talking about your commitment to Him. I'm talking about His commitment to you. Now, should we be committed? Yes, but our commitment is never the foundation. Our commitment is never the bedrock. His commitment is the foundation. Our commitment is a response to His commitment. There's so many things in life that we have to look at and say, God, you started this in my life. You becoming a Christian wasn't your idea. Now, at some point, you said yes to Him, but Jesus chose you. How many of you believe that Jesus knew you before the foundation of the world? In Jeremiah, God said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you to Myself. Now you may say, but, but Brother Cook, I specifically remember when I said yes to Jesus. I made a decision for Him. I made a choice for Him. I know, yes, that's absolutely part of it. But what you did was long after Him setting His love upon you, Jesus died for your sin before you had ever committed a sin. He said, you did not choose me, I chose you. Jesus said, I will build my church. 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know, sometimes people think, well, man, in America, you know, there's people who attack Christianity and, and there's people who are, you know, have agendas to undermine the core values that, you know, we believe even our nation was founded on and, you know, the Christian faith is under, under persecution. What do you think is going to happen? Um, what I think is going to happen is that Jesus is going to build His church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. Christianity did not thrive in early centuries because social mores and political ideologies and moral values and theological perspectives in society were conducive to applauding the Christian faith. The church was born and thrived and people, multi believers were multiplied in days that were completely uh, adversarial and hostile to the Christian faith. Listen, our faith is not a wimpy faith. Let, let me show you, can I, can I show you a few pictures? I, I, I love history and I love visiting many of these places. Let's throw up that first picture if we could. This place, this location is a picture I took a few years ago in Rome. It is a place called the Mamertine Prison. It's a pit that used to be an old water cistern until it quit working well because it kept backing up with sewage when it rained heavily instead of fresh water. And this is where Paul was when he wrote 2 Timothy. This is where Paul was awaiting execution when he said, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. This is where Paul was when he said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my race. I have kept the faith. This, this is where Paul was. Next time you read 2 Timothy, he was not writing in some cushy, you know, place. He was writing in this pit of a prison. The, the next picture shows what it's like inside the prison looking up. Now today they have a stairway going down the side, but in Paul's day, and he would have probably been in his mid-60s when this happened, that, I don't think they probably had the, the metal grate there in Paul's day. That's something they have today to keep from having lawsuits. But that's where they would drop the prisoners in. They might, if they were in a good mood, they might lower them down with a rope. If they were not in a good mood, they might just throw them down. That's where Paul was when he wrote uh, 2 Timothy. Peter was held there also right before his death. Both were executed under the Roman emperor Nero. The next picture shows uh, the church in Antioch. Uh, it's actually a cave. They built a, a facade front over it. Uh, this is where the believers likely were when they were having that meeting in Acts chapter 13 as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I've sent them. The next picture shows the inside looking out. And uh, so believers met where they could meet. The next picture is a, um, a cave church in a, a region of modern-day Turkey called Cappadocia. And uh, there, in that region, it's just east of Galatia, there are some 800 cave churches uh, where believers would meet. I, that's not my picture. That's not me or part of my group. But we got to visit several of those in March of 22. And on into the 8th and 9th century, when Arab raiders were coming across the land... Christians would meet in these underground caves. And these are much older than that as well. This next picture is uh, on the island of Patmos. Now, you've got to kind of forget all the religious uh, stuff in the candelabras and things like that. But you see that rock ledge to the right? Can you see the, the rock ledge? And then you see the modern bricks going up. That rock ledge is where they believe John may have been when he wrote the island of Patmos. It's a small little cave on the island of Patmos. And John, who at that time was the last of the original band of apostles, 
was sent out to the island of Patmos. He was in exile for 18 months because the emperor Domitian, the Roman emperor, had learned that when you kill the Christians, it just makes martyrs out of them. And, and like Tertullian said, he said, the more you mow us down, the more we multiply. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Because see, Jesus uh, was building his church and the gates of hell could not prevail against it. So Domitian decided somewhere very late first century, well, you know, we've killed all these others. We've killed Peter, Paul, you know, all these other, they just martyred them and the church just kept growing. And they said, well, I'll just send John out to this island 40 miles off the coast, you know, shut him up because there's no media. He couldn't text messages. He couldn't email anybody. You know, he's just, you know, and, and Domitian said, I, I'll just shut him up. It didn't work because John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. God gave him the book of Revelation when the emperor said, I'm going to shut this guy up and and Jesus said, not really, not really. So this is probably the location that John would have been when he wrote the book of Revelation. The next picture is just showing that far right side, the cave wall. And of course, they've got some religious, you know, things there. And you say, why is that picture so crooked? It's crooked because you can't take pictures in there. You say, well, how'd you get that picture? Well, one of, I, I led a tour group. I've led a bunch there. One of the people in my group afterwards said, uh, I took pictures. And I said, shame on you. Give me your pictures. <laughs> I mean, you know, it already been done and, and that type of thing. So anyway, so uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6 in the Amplified talking about Jesus' commitment to us. I will build my church. God himself has said, I will not in any way fail you, nor give you up, nor leave you without support. I will not, I will not, I will not in any degree leave you helpless, nor forsake, nor let down my let down or relax my hold on you, assuredly not. So we, we take comfort and are encouraged and confidently and boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be seized with alarm. I will not fear or dread or be terrified. I want you to know that Jesus is committed to you. He's the author and the finisher of your faith. He's the alpha and the Omega. He didn't bring you this far to let you drown in the middle. He will perform the good work that He began in you, not just individually, but as Living Word Family Church. There are three things that Jesus said to every church, and He's committed. He's the head of the church. Now, He appoints people, humans here, to be His representatives. That's why we have pastors. But um, three things that Jesus said to every church in the book of Revelation, if you want to know what Jesus' priorities are for a church, number one, he said to every single church in the book of Revelation, I know your works. He wants every church to be a working church. You say, but we're not saved by works. No, but other people are saved by churches getting busy and working. Um, I mean, it's all based on Jesus, but churches have to you know, represent him. Jesus said to every single congregation, I know your works. Number two, Jesus said to every single church, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Jesus wants churches who are eager to hear, listening to the Word and the Spirit. And number three, Jesus said, he that overcomes, and then described a reward for overcomers. Jesus wants every church to be a working church, a listening church, sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and He wants every church to be an overcoming church. So that's the first great, the great commitment. Jesus is committed to building His church. Number two, this is one you'll know well, the great commission. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That is the great commission. Now, you know, when we talk about the great commission, many times we're, we're talking about har- uh, harvesters. You know, Jesus said that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers into his harvest. And many times the, the other idea that comes up is we have a limited time to do this. Jesus said, work while it is day. The night cometh when no one can work. You know, we are not guaranteed, you know, in, in, a, in a certain sense, we're not guaranteed that, well, we can just take our leisure time and, you know, someday get around to reaching the lost and, and things like that. And sometimes people ask the question, well, do you think we're in the last days? And I know there have been all kinds of crazy things where people have set dates and things like that. You, you ask me if I have a date. No, 100% of the people that have ever set a date have been wrong. They, they all feel they've got this special secret formula, you know, from whatever, and they've all been 100% wrong. Uh, Jesus said, occupy till I come. And, and he said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith upon the earth? And, and he talked about that, that the, the servant who will be honored is the one who is busy doing his master's work when the master returns. And I have a simple answer to people who ask the question, do you think we're in the last days? Well, two answers. One, theologically, yes. The last days began, according to my understanding of the Bible, on the day of Pentecost. You see, that's been 2,000 years. That's not a big deal for God. Uh, a day with him is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. But it's very likely, and I think probably accurate, that Peter preached the day of Pentecost sermon at the very beginning of the last days. And I think it's very possible that we're at the very end of the last day. So theologically, you know, you can do all kinds of mental gymnastics with that. But I'll tell you what's, to me, the most important part of this whole question, are we in the last days? We're in somebody's last day. Every day that we live is somebody's last day. We have a little slide here that every second, every second, 1.8 people die. Every minute, 107 people die. Every hour, 6,393 people die. You realize, Pastor Scott, that since this church service started, now these are worldwide statistics, but how many people are passing into eternity? 1.8 every second. Every day, 153,425 people die. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. That's why the Great Commission is so important. I came across this chart a while back. It's, it's on the screen about they surveyed churchgoers. And um, when it comes to the Great Commission, 51% of churchgoers, I don't know what that means. You know, I don't know if that means they're born again or just religiously attend a service or periodically. But 51% said, I don't even know what the Great Commission is. Don't even know. Uh, let's go back to that if we could. Uh, 25% said, yes, but I can't recall the exact meaning. Well, they lied. They're in the 51% that didn't know what it was. So, uh, that was pretty judgmental of me to say that. I'm sorry. Uh, 6% said, I'm not sure. And only 17% said, yes, and it means this. We, we've got a lot of churches that need to wake up if we don't even know what the Great Commission is. Now, have you ever wondered why it's called the Great Commission? Why isn't it just called the Great Mission? It's called the Great Commission. What is the prefix? Think back to your English days, English class days. What does the prefix co mean? 
Co means together with. Here's why it's a great co-mission, not just a great mission. Let's look at that next slide if we could, please. God is on a mission. Jesus, when he came, he said, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. How many of you know Jesus is still on that mission? Jesus is still seeking and seeking to save those that are lost. We are on a mission with God. When you say, God, I'm going to pray for the lost. I'm going to support my church so we can be a strong light in the community. Uh, We are on a mission with God. That's why we call it a commission. We don't do what we do in our own strength and our own ability. Pastor Scott doesn't get up here and share the truth of, of the Word of God just out of his own natural skill. He does it because God's called him and God's anointed him. When you go into your neighborhood, workplace, wherever you go, how many of you know he's with you? You are carrying his presence with you. We're on a co-mission with God. And number three, we talked about the great commitment. We talked about the great uh, commandment. Uh, I'm sorry, the great commission. Now let's look at number three, and I just said it accidentally, the great commandment. The great commandment. How many of you, uh, I remember growing up as a kid listening to the Ten Commandments. I don't know that I thought it through this well, but how many of you know that all of you broke the Ten Commandments before you even knew what the Ten Commandments were? I'm pretty sure that when I was maybe two years old, I coveted my brother's candy bar. I didn't know there was a commandment that said, thou shalt not covet. I just did it. I just coveted my brother's candy bar. I didn't necessarily know that there was a commandment that said, thou shalt not steal. But I stole his candy bar and destroyed the evidence. When my mother said, Tony, did you steal your brother's candy bar? I didn't necessarily know that there was a commandment that said, thou shalt not lie, but I lied. No, I don't know anything about this candy bar. Before I was even old enough to know that there were ten commandments, I'd already broken three of them, which isn't really good because the Bible says if you've broken one of them, you're guilty of them all. That's why we say that everybody's sin and everybody's come short of the glory of God. That's why we say nobody's going to heaven based on how good they are, how perfect they are. Nobody's going to heaven based on how religious they are. Heaven's not for good people. Nobody's good enough. Heaven's not for perfect people. Nobody's perfect. Heaven's not for religious people. Heaven's for one type of person and one type of person only, a forgiven person. A person that God has given them new life through the new birth because their faith is in Jesus. The Jews didn't have just ten commandments. Uh, Moses did, you know, through God, God through Moses did give them a, a, a summary of ten. Uh, but there were actually 613. How many of you are thankful today? You don't have to get up and look at a list of 613 things that you should and shouldn't do that day. Uh, God did narrow it down to 10, but how many of you know some people aren't content with just 10? This guy comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? He wanted to know, I want to know, I don't want to know the top 10, I want to know numero uno. I want to know number one. And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Did Jesus answer his question? The guy says, which is the great commandment? Jesus said, this is the great commandment. How many of you know sometimes when you ask God a question, he answers, gives you more than you asked for? Because Jesus didn't just stop with the great commandment. He said, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Can I tell you something? Loving God is easy. Loving your neighbor sometimes is challenging. I mean, how can you not love God 
He gives you sun. He gives you rain. He gives you breath. He gives you life. He, you know, he, he, he's the author of every good thing. He sent Jesus for you. It's, it's kind of easy to love God if you're not deceived. And, and if you're not, you know, got goofy ideas about God where you wouldn't want to be close to Him. If you know God for who He is, He, he loved you with an eternal love. It's, it's kind of spiritually easy to love God in return. People sometimes are challenging, though. Um, everybody's got quirks. Everybody's got their glitches and idiosyncrasies. And, you know, uh, and, and I'm not just saying this like it's everybody else's problem. Sometimes I probably am difficult. You know, uh, I may say something that rubs somebody the wrong way. And I, I may do something that irritates somebody. You know, we've all, how many of you know we all have that potential? And uh, Jesus said, this is what he said in John chapter 13, verse 34. He said, a new commandment I give to you. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This great commandment that Jesus gave. What is the great commandment? According to the verse we looked at a minute ago, it's real simple. Love God, love people. We can get into all kinds of complicated theories and philosophies and religious speculation and theological discussions and so on. But when it comes right down to it, love God, love people. And Jesus said our primary witness in the world will be that we love one another. I was so amazed. Uh, one of our Rhema churches put something on social media. It's actually during COVID when everybody's hating one another um, because everybody disagreed with one another. They had different views, philosophies, and, you know, and, and People kind of forgot about loving one another for, you know, just a year or so. And, um, but one of our churches are actually Pastor Scott in the Cincinnati area, and, and they had a work day at their church. And, um, and it was just really the pastor and his spouse and a couple people, just a small group showed up to, I don't know what, painting a wall or, you know, cleaning some rooms or something like this. And this guy walks in off the street. And... Uh, you know, they said, well, how, you know, how are you doing? He said, uh, is there anything to do around here? And I thought that was an interesting thing for somebody just walking in. And, and they said, well, we're just here going to do a little work around the church. You know, you're, you want to help us? And the guy said, yeah. He said, I live in an apartment by myself. And he said, I'm so lonely. He said, I just want to be around people. You know, because back then everything was shut down and the quarantines and that type of thing. And I'm, I'm making an observational statement, not nothing else. But he said, I just want to be around some people. And the pastor said, well, I'm going to this room to do this. Just come with me. And so they just worked together. And after a little bit, you know, just small talk, you know, that type of thing. But this, this guy said, he said, there's something different about this place. He says, I, I feel really good here. He said, I, I just... I just wanted to be around people. And there's such a, a, a hunger in this world. Have you noticed that a lot of people, and I'm not talking about you, uh, you know, but a lot of people have gotten mean the last few years, just, you know, at each other's throats. And, you know, their civility many times has been completely abandoned. You know, if somebody disagrees with you, it's not enough just to say, wow, that's, I, I appreciate your, your viewpoint. I don't see it quite that way, but... I like you. I appreciate you. It's, you know, if, if you don't see it the way I do, I've got to destroy you, you know. And, and it just, it's gotten so hateful. And Jesus said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, that you have love one for another. And remember what Paul said. I, I quoted it this morning. And I, this has been a, a checkpoint for me many times, you know, whether serving or giving or whatever. Je Jesus uh, Paul said, if I give everything I have to the poor, and if I give my body to be burned as, as a martyr, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. 
God is so interested in us having love, the love of God as a foundation. And see, that requires that we recognize, I may not be able to love somebody in my flesh, but the Bible says, the love of God has been shed abroad in my heart by the Holy Spirit. We have to learn to let God and His love from the inside live out of us in practical expression and practical application. Let me share with you one quote in closing. One of the early church leaders uh, was a guy named Justin. He goes by Justin Martyr. Martyr was not his last name, uh, but he went by Justin. And, and because he was martyred for his faith, you know, they in the early Roman Empire, if you, if you did, wouldn't worship the Roman gods or things of that, if you wouldn't uh, worship Caesar, many times people were put to death for that, for being traitors and treasonous and insurrectionists and troublemakers. And, you know, thousands of Christians were put to death simply because they would not bow their knee before Caesar as a savior. They believed what Pastor Scott said, that there is only one person, there's only one name that that brings eternal life, and that's the name of Jesus. And Justin Martyr one time was giving um, a defense of the Christian faith, and this was his testimony. He said, we who formerly hated and murdered one another, now live together and share the same table. We pray for our enemies, and we try to win those who hate us. That's what the early church was known for. They were known for loving one another. I could quote several other early church fathers. There was one particular uh, pastor in northern Africa uh, named Cyprian, and there was a plague that had come through, all, you know, Europe and northern Africa. And, you know, I understand. I have friends that died during COVID. So, please, I'm not in any way saying that wasn't a valid disease, that type of thing. But when you look at the plagues historically that have gone through different parts of the world, um, historically, many of the plagues would take out 30% of the population. You go back and study the Black Death and the bubonic plague. And in in the early days of Christianity, the church was blamed for those plagues. Any earthquake, any natural disaster, flood, famine, anything, earthquakes, whatever happened, they blamed the Christians. You say, well, why would they blame the Christians? Well, the reason is, is because when a plague, an earthquake, a famine, a flood happened, do you know why it happened? The gods were angry. That's why natural disasters happened. That was their Greek, you know, mythological view. The gods were angry. Why were the gods angry? Because they weren't being worshipped enough. What segment of society refused to worship the Greek and or the Roman gods? It was the Christians. So can you imagine the wrath of the people against the Christians? Tertullian said, anytime the Tiber rises, that's a river that goes through Rome, they shout, away with the Christians. Any any bad thing happened, it was because the Christians' fault. Cyprian, at, at the height of a plague that was going across the Roman Empire, the Bible, not the Bible, history says, he assembled his congregation and exhorted them to love their enemies, whereupon all went to work, the rich with their money, the poor with their hands, and they rested not till the dead were buried, the sick cared for, and the city saved from desolation. In those days, people were so terrified of the plague that if somebody in their home began to have any symptom, they would kick them out of the home. If they happened to die in the home, they would carry their body, throw it in the street, and run back into the house. The Christians were the ones that would care for the sick who were cast out. The Christians were the ones who would bury the dead bodies. They were the ones that bore witness to God's love in the earth. I just want to close with this tonight. 
the great commitment Jesus is committed to building His church. The great commission we have been told to partner with God in expressing His love to the world. And thirdly, the great commandment. The way, first and foremost way that we demonstrate the love of God to the world is by the way we love one another. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for your people tonight. Thank you for the care, the compassion that you have for each and every one. Father, I know people here, they're individually and as families and couples, you know, we, we always face challenges in life. We have an adversary who goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And Father, tonight we just thank you for the mighty, majestic name of Jesus. And we speak that name over every family, over every situation, over every challenge and struggle. And Father, we pray that your peace and your wisdom would flood people's lives. Lord, we pray that your healing power would flow into individuals and into, into relationships tonight. Father, we just thank you for helping us to really have a reference point for our lives. That we're not just you know, drifting and floating in, 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 you know, some cosmic, you know, experience, but we have a foundation. We're, we're standing on the solid rock. That rock will not fail us. And Lord Jesus, help us to embrace our, our identity as priests and help us to really receive your commitment to us. That you will never leave us. You will never forsake us. Help us to have a heart that goes beyond just me, me and my needs and me and my family's needs and our church. Help us to have a heart for the world. And Father, thank you for the love of God that's been shed abroad in our hearts. Lord, help us to become just so proficient at saying no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit. Father, I thank you for it. I thank you for Pastor Scott. I thank you for every person that's a part of this great family. All the leaders, all the workers, everybody that makes this church what it is. And I just thank you for your great, great blessings upon it. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Pastor Scott, I'll turn it to you. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, Make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.